This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Christchurch Conversations for 2022 continues the climate action theme with a series of five events. This recording is part two of the first event called Embracing the Urban Wild and features a panel discussion, questions from the audience, and local stories. I'd now like to invite our panellists to come up. You all know where you're sitting, because <laughs> we practised this, but uh, welcome to the stage, Anthony Shadbolt, who's a landscape architect and biodiversity officer at Christchurch City Council. Craig Pauling, who you will know as a regional councillor. He also specialises in ecology and environmental management. And um, Colin Merck, who's a landscape ecologist and research associate at Manaki Whenua and also at the University of Canterbury and a prolific advocate of all things to do with ecologically sensitive urbanism. And uh, wonderful Di Lucas, who is a landscape architect, environmental planner, and a life member of the New Zealand Institute of Landscape Architects. And I'm just going to shuffle myself in now too. I thought Joseph started on a very inspirational note, and we're just going to do a quick fire inspirational round to start us off. Right, quick fire, I'm going to ask each of you to name one urban wild place in Ototahi and tell us what's great about it. Craig. Kia ora koutou. Ao tuatahi uh, ka nui te mihi ki a koe, a koe whanaunga, uh, mō tō kōrero, uh, hōhonu i tēnei, tēnei pō. Uh, uh, tēnei te mihi hoki uh, mō tō mahi uh, uh, i tēnei uh, wāhi, tēnei whenua, uh, o ngai tua hururi, uh, tēnei te mihi uh, ki a koe, te rangatira. Uh, so just acknowledging uh, Joseph for his awesome uh, opening up for us. Um, and reminding us of some really important things to, to consider going forward. So thank you, uh, Joseph. Um, yeah, first of all, um, the, the first place that came to mind for me was the Ihutai, actually, which was on the map before. Um, Avon, was it Avon Heathcote Estuary or something? But in particular, um, from Rapa Nui, uh, Shag Rock, uh, across to, um, to Karoro Karoro, the South Brighton Spit, and round into Te Kai or Te Karoro, into uh, like bridge, uh, river, uh, is it the, anyway, the bridges uh, into the Otakaro. And I, because um, that's really, really where I fell in love um, with nature, um, because I lived, I grew up in Aranui, and I used to go down there on my bike uh, and hang out down there, and I just loved being able to, A, pop over and see the ocean, uh, the water coming in, uh, also to see Kātiritiri o Te Moana, the, the Southern Alps behind, uh, Te Pātaka o Rākauhotu, Banks Peninsula, the Port Hills, uh, straight across, um, just everything about it um, spoke to me. So um, that was my first, and I'm going to have a second one because I, I, it's in my nature to be mischievous. Um, uh, the other one, because I moved to the other side of the town um, as I became an adult, and had a family, um, and my second one is Ōtū Matua, which is just a little hill above Horsel Quarry, um, but really significant to our whakapapa, 
um, uh, because it's a boundary marker between the Kemp's purchase of Canterbury and the Banks Peninsula purchases uh, from the from Naitahu to the Crown. And, um, but it's just an unassuming little hillock. It's not even a hill, really. Um, but the quarry below it, Kennedy's Bush above it, um, I can see everything from there I need to see. Uh, when I go up there, um, I can see my relations at Kaipui, my whanau at Taumutu, um, across to Waihora, um, the Southern Alps again, the, the hills are right behind me. I just love it, so kia ora. Kia ora, Shane. Colin? <coughs> uh, kia ora, um, and kia ora, Joseph, uh, thank you so much for your inspiration at the beginning. Um, so I'm not going to uh, cite uh, Oroparua, Travers Wetland, which everyone might expect as my favourite wild place, <laughs> because we're only allowed to mention one. So I'm going to say something a little unconventional here and talk about the rubble of uh, the city, and, uh, and particularly an area sort of on the corner of um, Manchester Street and Chewham Street, where, where nature is sort of succeeding back into um, a, a, a raw kind of rubbly environment. And it's a bit like Angus's braided rivers, actually, and there's some very rare native plants, uh, such as the windgrass, which have sort of colonised those areas. And, um, and also uh, there's a bracken fern uh, growing up and a brick wall next to that uh, that have uh, in a drip line off the roof, and, um, and of course there are little insects and birds that are feeding off those as well. So that's, uh, I'm sort of inspired by that, uh, even though it's uh, not everyone's cup of tea. I, I want to take, uh, <laughs> um, my friends lead and have one and a half sites. Um, my favourite site is probably Te Waku Kākatea, which means dense Kākatea forest, and it's a, a 10 hectare reserve on the Styx Puhat Kikinui River. And I'll take my lead from what Joseph and Eric said about space. Uh, space is really important. We need large spaces to have viable forest ecosystems. And the trees we plant in this forest, there's over 2,500 kākatea. They've been planted for about maybe 10 years, 11 years, and already fruiting, providing fruit, which will be eaten by kiriloo, one day kāka, and, and you, yeah, absolutely. Um, and when you walk through this forest, you feel better coming out the other side. It's got a lovely um, six source to see walkway running from one end to the other. But it's also wide enough to get off that walkway and actually into a forest area that's been planted. Although it's been planted, it's not contrived. It's, it's evolved almost spontaneously, and you feel like you're in the wild. And the other half side is the other end of the site, which is a long Maori site, so a traditional Maori medicine. And that's probably the most special part because it has the people coming and interacting with the forest, learning about long Maori, traditional healing. And it's a very spiritual place. When you're there, you just feel that one with nature, and it's um, a lovely space. And if you haven't been there, it's 303 Radcliffe Road. It's worth a drive and a look, or a bike ride. Kia ora, Thank you. Well, my colleague suggested I address my own place, because I'm in the central city, and I will do that, because I'm in a townhouse in the central city, just 250 square metre site, and it's been really interesting. I've been 31 years there. But what you can have on a central city small lot. You know, I've got my guava kōwhai, I've got, you know, the whiki ponga, we've got a lot of different, a titoki of fruiting, <laughs> and the kereru arrive to feast on the kōwhai, the skink came up the steps. <laughs> so you can have a lot of nature, even in a very small uh, urban central city site and I've tried you know to work towards a zero runoff so that the water's all retained on site 
uh, green roof. You know, it's a lot of different invertebrates. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting what we can do in this environment with not that much effort with local nature. Yeah. I'd quite like to pick up, actually, Di, on what you said, and, and also maybe um, what Colin alluded to, too, that idea that you can have wildness in small spaces as well as in big spaces. One of the things I'm wondering about is, Di, you have immense knowledge. Colin, you'll be able to identify things that, to me, just, I mean, they just look like weeds. So how do the rest of us um, embrace the urban wild in those little spaces? Well, a few decades ago, and after a public um, event, actually, it was Town Hall, then it was suggested by the Ōtutahi um, Gender 21 group. We um, got the community boards to contract us to do guides to what is natural to each part of the city. And so those... Um, guides people remember from the 90s. I, I grabbed one, haven't looked at it for a while, but um, we did a set of four different guides and people would go and get a sheet so that they could know what naturally belonged in their street, right on their place. And so um, we have now got that... Put it online? Thank you. We've now... Um, put it on the City Council website. It was really nice. The Council allowed us to do that. So you'll see that um, link at the top in the middle there. And so you can now go online and put your address in on that website and it will come up with the plants in that, that belong on your place and it gives some idea of the staging and so on. And I'm adding another column on how you might use those plants uh, so we'll add that short. I've just been a bit too busy. So, yeah. so I think, um, you know, the, and I agree, the knowledge, having the knowledge to understand what is there is really important. Um, but I've always sort of been really impatient, really, to... Um, that's why I got involved in restoration a lot and mentored by Colin, um, because I had this sort of thing that came to me and it was that you can't love what doesn't exist. And... Um, because we were so starved of um, having this biodiversity around us, you know, there's just there's zero, like, there's real little knowledge in our city. So I'm like, let's get more of it so more people interact with it and more people then will become to understand it because um, it's sort of, like, invisible at the moment. So I just, like, let's get more of it, more spaces that it can grow in the rubble, more spaces that we're actively managing, like Angus uh, said. Um, so, yeah, just more of it. <laughs> Are there particular ecosystems that, any of you are especially worried about or would like to see prioritised in our city? Can, okay. Go um, actually, could we have my slide three? Um, because what I would like to mention is that, you know, we can fit a lot of nature into tiny spaces. And this is a 10 metre by 10 metre exhibit for uh, the Ellerslie okay. Flower Show a few years ago. And it's got all the kind of range of environments in that tiny little space. There's a little bit of bush, there's cracks in the footpath, there's lawns which have got 
made up totally of native species. There's a treatment train of water, and there's a green roof in the background, and a trickle down, and a rock garden. All of these things can contribute enormously to the very extremely rare native biodiversity uh, that is our small herbaceous plants, as well as the big trees and the, the forests. Because, um, and, and this is the place where we can do it, because we can garden, we can manage, we can um, manipulate the environment to uh, support these things in the tiniest of spaces. Um, and they include the cracks in the footpath and the, and, the, and the walls, the stone walls, which have got lichens and mosses growing on them, and all the insects that feed off those, and, and so on. So, yeah. Can, can I just say there's one problem, though, with that, Colin, when you do grow a front lawn forest. Um, sometimes you get um, crazy visitors showing up at your house and uh, scaring your wife. Um, when they look through the window and she's in her dressing gown. So that's happened a few times. Um, thanks, Colin. I'm sorry. I'm sorry we did that. Wetland environments, which are you know, chronically threatened throughout the country, particularly in Canterbury, um, they could be the size of Lake Ellesmere, Tiwahora, they could be the size of this stage here, but they all harbour you know, really important biodiversity and they're hugely threatened. The things we see every day are waterways and rivers in Christchurch, and they're probably one of the last vestiges of, of biodiversity. When we arrived as Europeans, we cleared pretty much everything. We've, we cleared the land to, to grow houses and sheep and cows, we drained the land, we put the waterways into timber-sided drains and pipes, and we managed for one, one value for, you know, 150 years probably, die. Mm, yeah. But now we're managing for the six values, so drainage, landscape, ecology, recreation, culture, and heritage. But that, that needs space, and we've got great opportunity with the um, Otakaro Avon River Corridor. We've got 150 metres either side of the river, but other waterways like the Upper Six River, Heathcote, and Avon, they're sandwiched between, you know, potentially between houses. We've lost the boat on the Heathcote and Avon, uh, but the Puhana Kekanui Sticks still has hope to actually get some good setbacks and good corridors to allow the river to do what it needs to do. Um, the river needs to be able to decide for itself, um, within reason, how it evolves over time. And the bigger the reserves, the more sustainable um, and resilient those systems are. You get the full sequence of, of vegetation patterns from aquatic, riparian, harakiki, shrubland, into tall forest. And I think that's what we need. I think the, um, the upper, upper Hethka has, you know, the retrospective work that the City Council has done with uh, stormwater basins and wetlands and stuff. There's amazing stuff happening around where I live. Uh, the New Sutherlands Road area, massive wetlands being reconstructed. I say reconstructed because they were there in the past, of course. Um, you know, I think it's, it's inspiring to see that and it's awesome to have that, especially around where I live. I said to Michelle and Jessica before when we spoke about coming here that if you know the things that the quarry hasn't hasn't developed and have we have beautiful native forests there now, growing forests, uh, all those stormwater basins hadn't been created. I don't know if I'd still live there, because I need that. I need that in my life. I need that there. I need. I want the birds to come down to my house. I want to hear the kōrimaku in the morning. So I, I really uh, pay tribute to the work that has been done as well. Um, and I think Christine Hedemeyer was a person that. Uh, did had a hand in starting that, so um, pay tribute to her as well. And just it's it's actually we're lucky too. We've done some good things, and we should shouldn't forget that. Yeah. So just thinking about climate change here, and thinking about um, perhaps needing to make room for I don't know habitat retreat, other dynamic changes that might be generated by climate change. How do you do that in an urban environment when you think you've got hard boundaries? You've got roads, 
we've got sewage ponds, we've got all these other things. Well, we've, we've done it once already, of course, with the red zone that um, Eric had up in his, um, you know, for a different purpose. But actually, it's quite convenient, actually, because it's going to the climate change issues going to probably prove that was a good thing to do in the end. Um, so we actually have been through that as a community, and it was tough. You know, my mum lived right there on on the river, and um, it wasn't that she um, didn't want to move, but it was the community that was lost was the biggest thing. But um, um, we've actually done it, and we could do it again if we had to, I believe. Um, of course, it requires lots of money. The yeah. brilliant yeah. in terms yeah. of addressing climate change. It was just three weeks before the February earthquake that it was signed off to be, you know, it's flood prone, it will go under. And so it was so brave and good that it was red zone um, because it, and we need to design and plan for that transition. So rather than dry land ecosystems, we need to address the wetness that will increase there. Yeah. So I think there's real hope that we can, yeah. Mm. Good. Um, Comment on that too? Yeah, sure. uh, yeah, could I have the slide seven, please? And, and just addressing um, Joseph's point about uh, the densification of cities, which we know needs to happen for climate change purposes to reduce transport costs, et cetera, et cetera. But we need to compensate that with more green space so that the public may not have their quarter acre section, but they have got um, easy access and close access to nature because it's where the most people in the world live, in urban environments. So we need to, um, you know, people need to be exposed and engage with nature in order to understand it better, in order to address these other existential crises like climate change. If we understand the processes of nature, then we have a better understanding of why we need to change our behaviour. So we'll just um, maybe throw to Jess because she's giving me the eye, saying that there's definitely some questions from the floor. Sure. And I'm also really interested in the panel thinking about whether it would be possible for every person in Christchurch to live within walking distance of a wild space in a climate future. Um, there are so many questions, so apologies to those questions that we don't get to because we run out of time. There's great questions, so thank you all for the questions. Um, one person asked, and I think this is relevant to what you've said already, is it better to provide multiple small wild spaces or large consolidated wilds? Do we want private gardens and parklets or do we want these really big, expansive areas? What a good question. If we want viable wildlife populations, they need tens of thousands of hectares, so we, we can't do that in a city, but we can have a lot of smaller patches, you know, uh, five hectares, 20 hectares. And like Colin and Graham Hall wrote back in 2006 in their very good, uh, excellent uh, paper, um, providing that bush patch configuration across the city. We've got Travis Wetland, we've got Horseshoe Lake, we've got Tewaku Kakatea, Rickerton Bush, Sticksmore Reserve, all these p patches are distributed across the landscape. Trying to find areas that are small patches, one and a half hectares, is really, really hard. But I think we can overcompensate by having the bigger patches even bigger again where we can. And we're sort of doing that. We're achieving that quite well. And I think the, the Council's Urban uh, Regional Parks Network is a good example. Um, of getting those big forest patches across the landscape, and people can walk from their houses or bike 
to have a national park type experience without having to drive for two hours to get to Arthur's Pass. And I think that's really important too. So everybody from all means, economic means or time means, can actually experience nature on a daily basis and high quality natural character too. Jess, um, there have, thank you. There have been. Yeah, yeah, of course, we want it all. So one of the alls that people are asking about, and there's two questions relating to this, is, you know, will citywide wildflowers on traffic islands and road verges contribute to biodiversity? What about grass verges? Council seems to be... The question is, why is council obsessed by grass verges to street edges? That's a lost opportunity, isn't it? So... You know, are those going to be contributing spaces to our wildness and, and biodiversity? I think this is a die question. I think this is a landscape architect oh, question. <laughs> no, I think that the verges and all of that can contribute hugely if we took a different approach to them. Um, what, yeah. sort of what sort of approach do well, you think, Well, we can have Di? biodiversity and still have plenty of visibility and, you know, safety and... So get yeah. rid of the grass... Kind of scruffy, yes, we've got to get scruffier. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, 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 these um, provide the corridors that link all of those patches together of different sizes, and um, they can be street trees. I mean, an individual tree is a habitat, for example. Um, and, and as I mentioned, grass lawns can be native species as well, and they're feeding a whole lot of different little uh, microfauna. So. Um, there's scope for incorporating all of these elements um, in our city and enriching it and making it a diverse place uh, that, that does lots of different things and lots of moving parts. But it takes different skills. Yeah. So you can't just send out the person with the lawnmower and the clippers. Uh, it takes quite different skills. We need to nurture skills in the city. I mean, I have a green lawn or native species, but, you know, I can spot different <laughs> invaders and I can pull them out. But a lot of people wouldn't have a clue. And um, so we've got to get the skill, nurture the skills to manage this. Well, what, I, what I call this is eco ecological literacy, is raising the general knowledge and awareness and understanding of the, of the whole community to understand the natural processes, how, how you practice kaitiakitanga, or, or management for the benefit of nature. It's actually it, 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 it increases people's empathy for nature as well. It increases people's empathy for nature. If they know about nature, then they'd be more inclined to be involved with nature and restore it so you get healthy people and healthy ecosystems. I've actually got an interesting story, but I won't say it, but I just... How we got, how we got Tōtara in the streets in Wigram uh, through the Naitahu property development, working with the Runanga and others to really push to get them there, and actually Colin helped us because I got him involved to de debate with the landscape architects who were de designing that, and we managed to win those battles, but that was like a fluke in a way in the end because it was just happened to be right place, right time, right people, right knowledge, and we got there. But, but you know, we could do so much better, I think. Yeah. This might be a good time to play a little video that we have. We have um, been talking to a group at Otago University who are developing a garden star rating scheme. So you've heard of the green star rating that you might, a property developer might want their buildings to go through. Well, this is a garden star rating scheme. Uh, certain Colin Merck was on the reference group. And um, we might just play that now. 
Kia My name is Yolanda Van Hazek and I'm an urban ecologist at the University of Otago and I have a particular interest in the biodiversity of private gardens. Private gardens vary hugely across the city, so you might call this one a low-maintenance garden and at the other end of the spectrum you get really big gardens like this. But most gardens are versions of this where you've got some lawn, a few shrubs, a tree and maybe out the back a vegetable garden and some fruit trees. So gardens vary hugely in the amount of vegetation that they support. And these are two images just from different suburbs in Dunedin. And the vegetation volume is really a proxy for biodiversity because the more vegetation there is and the more diverse it is, then the more habitats and resources that it's providing for a whole range of other species. But um, <clears throat> of course, gardens are owned by a whole lot of uh, individuals and it's the decisions of those individuals which um, can have a huge impact on citywide biodiversity. And that's because gardens actually make up such a large area across the city. And in Dunedin, we've measured that vegetated garden area and it's 30% of the total urban area. Um, so that's, that's more than the parks and reserves network. So citywide urban biodiversity is really um, vulnerable to all the, to this tyranny of small decisions made by individual property owners, but um, but also <clears throat> by trends in, in housing development. So we're moving towards medium density residential developments, and you can um, and this image actually shows one of those on the right and contrasts it nicely with the more traditional gardens on the left. Um, so there's only a really small proportion of a, of a medium density residential development that is green space. And so it's increasingly important to um, make those green spaces as biodiverse as possible. But at the same time, I think we also have to um, make our traditional gardens as biodiverse as possible because they're increasingly going to um, <clears throat> comprise a smaller proportion of the total landscape. So they're going to and they're going to play a more important role in supporting biodiversity. But how do you actually measure the biodiversity of a garden? Well, a group of us have come up with a scheme that we have called Garden Star. And Garden Star is a rating scheme that um, identifies features in a garden that are indicative of biodiversity. And it comes up with a score. And you can use that score to compare your garden to other gardens. But you can also use it as a means of identifying things that you can do to improve the biodiversity value in your garden. So there are a number of kind of broad level categories that uh, contribute to that score. And one of them is the um, extent of permeable habitat. So here on the left hand, uh, in the left hand image, you've got property which has a really small proportion of permeable habitat. So permeable habitat is anywhere where vegetation can grow. Um, and whereas the, um, the property on the right has a lot more. And you might say, well, you know, it's difficult for us to change that and in some respects, that's correct. <coughs> Excuse me. But, um, but there are decisions that we can make and with respect to hard landscaping. So increasing hard landscaping is a, a common trend across our cities where permeable surfaces are being paved over. And so we can, um, we can resist uh, doing those kinds of things. Now, another category that contributes to the, um, the Garden Star score is habitat quality. And again, the house up, uh, the property up on the left uh, has got a rather poor um, quality garden. There's mostly lawn, there's a bit of hedge, a few small plants, if you compare it to that one on the right, which has much more vegetation volume. So when you're thinking about habitat quality, 
and wanting to improve it, then you should sort of think in terms of layers. So starting with ground cover, there are features that you can incorporate, such as piles of rotting wood or um, leaf litter that really provide habitat for lots of invertebrates. Um, and then when planting, thinking about, again, planting in layers to create um, vegetation volume that's very diverse and that's also dominated by native plants. And as well as that, um, removing pest species like the banana passion fruit that I have pictured there. Another component of the score is how you manage the habitat that you've got. And so you'll get points in, um, that contribute to your Garden Star score if you're engaged in activities like predator control, composting, or making habitats for wildlife like insect hotels or lizard gardens. And you'll lose points if you use a lot of pesticides or if you uh, mow your lawn all the time. And that image on the right shows, I guess, what some people would consider to be a perfect lawn, but for um, all other species, it is pretty much a barren wasteland. And by mowing your lawn less often and allowing it to become a bit more weedy, then that does provide a lot more resources for um, a range of species. And you'll also gain some points if you keep your cat indoors or if you create some small spaces that are a bit messy with long grass, lizards love that. And if you attract native birds uh, using sugar water or even better, planting species that provide those resources. Thank you very much. So we're all going to embrace messy gardens. Jessica's, I know, I know we've got more questions than we can deal with. Um, we are totally overwhelmed. You superstars are so popular. So if I can, if we've got time, Michelle. Yep. Um, we've, we've got 10 minutes. You're, when thinking about climate change and increased wildfire risk, how do we balance the built and wild environments in cities in a way that doesn't increase risk further? Because we, let's not forget, we've experienced our own major wildfire um, in well, recent years. I'm a, I'm a trustee of land over at Rapaki in the village in the Kainga there, and um, it's up on the hill above the village, and we're looking to reforest that land. And of course, some of the concerns that are coming from our whanaunga uh, who live in the Kainga is that, you know, we'll increase the fire risk for them. And so, we're, but again, I think it just all comes down to design and how you do it. Um, we know there's low flammable native species as well. We know we can do fire breaks and put good gaps between houses or the edges of the forest and things like that. So I, look, it's all possible. I just think it's, again, it's knowledge, just getting the right people on board um, and design it well so that it can fit um, and, you know, work together, so, yeah. That plant guide now has flammability yeah. on it. Um, we added that column last year. No. Mm. And another question. Um, in anticipation of climate change, where some species will not be able to adapt, for example, increasing salinity, do panellists recommend strictly adhering to restoration using locally eco-sourced plants? Or because of climate change, do we need to think differently about what those are. Salinity is a pretty good thing, really. Um, we can grow trees anywhere from Avondale Bridge to Arthur's Pass, but we can't have coastal wetland and salt marsh anywhere but in those parts of, of Christchurch. So, yeah, salt's a pretty good thing uh, for us. Yeah. Yep, yep. It's, it's a bit of a complicated uh, and controversial question. 
because we do generally want to um, plant eco-source species. We've heard a different perspective on that from Joseph too, um, on having a range of different uh, varieties to get flowering and fruiting. Um, but <clears throat> I think generally nature will adapt itself. Um, you know, we start off by providing the raw materials for um, nature to uh, occupy the local environment, but as things heat or, or dry um, or get more saline, then some of those species will kind of move to the edge in a way and others will kind of start colonising from the north. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's many different issues, like, for example, maybe kauri would uh, perform better down here without the kauri dieback, for example. Um, who know, you know, th there's, it's a complicated question, I think. No simple answer. But if we allow, trying to get these connections, these linkages, so that there can be that migration as things dry and wet or salt. Yeah. Eco-sourcing is definitely important. I mean, we've dealt, dealt with this at um, Te Arakakariki, which is a trust that Colin and I are both involved with out on the Selwyn uh, district. And we had this debate early on about what do we do with the plantings that we're advocating. And so we actually got Colin and other ecologists together and said, well, what does it actually mean to be eco-sourced? And we came up with a geographical area where we'd accept seed from, which was actually very vast. It was between the um, the, or the Rangitata and the Hiranui River, actually, because, and it's because you've got such little sea source on the Canterbury Plains anyway, you, you need to go that far to get it. So, um, but that's sort of a, definitely a foundational thing for those plantings, but you always have to be open, I think, to um, meaning as well. And I've always put a different edge on this debate around um, eco-sourcing because I know my ancestors in particular brought things with them, especially kōwhai, especially karaka, um, and yeah, harakiki as well, um, and kumara, let's not, let's not forget that, um, which is an exotic. Um, and so I think you always have to understand that there, there is those things that have happened over time, but they're done for a reason. So, you know, sometimes meaning and reason can mean you'll plant a kauri tree somewhere, because it's significant too. Um, but yeah, you've got to be really conscious about those decisions, I reckon. So I have a question for each panellist in turn. Just thinking about that intersection between biodiversity and the climate crisis, we're going to have a new council soon. What would you put at the top of the new council's agenda as an action to address that intersection point between, between the two? with this because I've, I've already done it this term. Um, basically more funding um, for protection and restoration um, of spaces. It can be spaces, it could be land purchase, it could be doing stuff on council's own land better, um, as well as supporting community organisations that are already doing good work out there. So basically more rates um, from, from the budgets to support those activities, that's what I think. So just increasing those budgets more and more because it's so important, yeah. Okay, I think we need to uh, establish a city that has greater emphasis on the well-being of nature, of the whenua, the land, and of the people, and to achieve a better kind relationship between them. And we need more nature. We need to compensate the densification by more accessible and visible public spaces that have got 
our own species in there which generate that identity and that sense of connection to the land and to your place um, and um, which enable us to kind of slow down and breathe and observe nature and learn from nature and thereby um, have less emphasis on you know, material uh, wealth and more on uh, sort of a more spiritual kind of um, connection to nature to reduce our impact on the wider environment, to reduce our consumption of energy and material things that have to be mined from some other part of the planet, um, because we've really got to change our, our paradigm and, um, and, and slow down and, and reduce our impact on the environment. That's a curious question for me as a council staffer, so I'm going to say what they said. But, 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 but I, I think um, it's really empowering communities to actually you know, take the ball in their own hands and do as much as, as they can and um, do it in a sustainable way. So we should be seeing the communities uh, taking the lead in restoration and finding ways to actually, actually help. I mean, there's 150 people in this room here could all be out there do some really great things, and you probably do. So you're supporting communities to do some really good work. I think that reviewing the way things are managed would be quite good. Um, it could be helpful both by the councils, but also the developers, the way they brief and want to manage these developments, because, you know, I'm on the urban design panel and these, some of these things you think, oh, I don't think that's a good sustainable solution, but that's not in our, you know, we're not allowed to turn things down in that regard. Um, you know, we could be trying to encourage, and, and how do people get educated in that? Uh, so getting that into a priority for the council the sort of landscape management that would increase resilience and um, our moving forward into this world, yeah, yeah. Definitely using Joseph's words before, more mana for the soul, um, but that the thing about having those parks and places where people can go within five minutes walk of everybody's house, like those sort of goals, um, that the city and the region could have, um, you know, that everybody, you know, I've always believed that, you know, have, having a kōrimaka or sing is, should be a right, actually, um, every morning, you know, you should be able to hear that every morning. If we don't do that, I feel like we're not doing our job properly. So that should be a goal of the city, in my opinion. So, you know, it feeds into maybe the National Park City trying to sort of thing, just trying to push that more. Yeah. yeah I disagree with the name. National oh, same. I totally same. disagree with it. We have a National Parks Act in New Zealand, and that is undermining that, and it is confusing for everybody. So, it has an important um, international um, connection, and it's turning something on its head. It's trying to be disruptive. That's what we need to do. We need to change our attitude and recognise that we all live within nature and not to separate that nature is out of sight, out of mind for only a few privileged people. Anyway, <laughs> debate park. to go. A nature park would be a better term. Good. Joseph, now. Um, kia ora. Just um, wanting to button here. So a couple of things. Social disruptors. And folks, we're on the edge of a precipice. Necessity is the mother of invention. Innovation is its father. Okay. And so Andrew is, is talking about 
You all, 150 of you, there are numerous planting days available at Tuhai Tara, at the Hudia Reserve in Kaiapoi, in the Otakaro Red Zone in Christchurch. Colin talked about 100 square metres. You can, if you contact Tuhai Tara, for instance, we will give you 100 square metres, 10 metres by 10 metres. You draw up a planting plan. We'll dig a scoop and create koaro mudfish habitat. You plant the plants, you tend the plants, and it is your mitigation against your carbon miles. It's 20, 20 kilometres to drive from Christchurch out to Tuhai Tara. <laughs> but, but you can plant your kahikatea, you can plant your tōtara, you can plant your kōwhais, and you can take your children out there. And when your biota node is full, you can ask for another one and give it to the children. And so, 100 metres, 100 metres, 100 metres, 100 metres, all of a sudden you've got a hectare, 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 all of a sudden you've got a national park, or a park. <laughs> a biodiversity park. <laughs> An Aotearoa park. Necessity is the mother of invention, innovation is its father, the challenge is yours. Oh, kia ora. And kia ora to all our panellists. That's all we've got time for tonight. Thank you all for joining the conversation. Let's continue it, but not on stage right now. <laughs>
Here, I was given the opportunity to carry out an invertebrate survey for the Estuary Trust. Through this project, I saw biodiversity at a whole new level. Not just from trees and shrubs, but all the little critters that all have their own role in the environment, that they are not even aware of that they're doing it. With the amount of biodiversity I found in one area, the restoration had only begun in 2002. So it just shows that people with passion, care and commitment can make such a huge difference to biodiversity in the area. Volunteering to help restore biodiversity around Christchurch has been extremely rewarding. From seeing the immediate results of three hours weeding to coming back a year later and seeing the results of a planting has truly been one of the best decisions I've ever made and has become a regular hobby. I have been regularly motivated through my university courses, learning about the benefits of continuing to enhance biodiversity, as well as meeting people and hearing their stories and knowledge that encourages me. Volunteering is extremely beneficial, as I get to be out in nature, which I often struggle to find time for when I'm studying. So by volunteering every Friday, I get three hours of my week to get outside, get my vitamin D, and take in my surroundings. Knowing that I'm doing my part to enhance biodiversity, for the present and creating habitat for thousands of invertebrates, invertebrates for the future. Kia ora. Um, tēnā koutou katoa. Um, my name is Sharon and I'm here from an organisation called Flourish Kia Pōwai to talk about one of our projects. Um, this project happens on the King George V Reserve in um, St Martin's we call it the tiny forest because we really need a new name for it um, it's situated on the banks of the Opawaho or Heathcote River and if you know the area at all it's on the walkway between Ainsley Terrace and Riverlaw Terrace behind the St Martin's Scout Den um, the tiny forest was planted for the sesquicentennial in 1990 under the leadership of Colin Merck and Colin has retained his involvement with it in this current project. Um, it's been described as one of the most established community-planted indigenous riparian reserves along the river, comprising an ecological sequence from lowland wetland trees, shrubs and glass, grasses to dryland species. So after 30 years, it's become a real um, treasure in the community, but it was needing a little bit of TLC. Now, Flourish Kiapuawai, of which I'm a part, is about responding to climate breakdown by enabling well-being, resilient and environmentally friendly lifestyles of our individuals, whānau and communities and creating innovative, holistic solutions and, and to leave and leverage sustainable, regenerative and environmental change. And so the key for us was really about finding a... Um, regenerative process to working in the tiny forest. Regeneration for us is about healing the whole community of life, not just conserving or restoring parts of it. It asks how humans can partner with nature to create fullness of health for nature and each other. So our focus is really about what can our community do in the tiny forest, but also what is the tiny forest doing for the community? I should stay at this stage that the, the um, project leader is Mark Gibson and he just lives and breathes this project. Unfortunately, he can't be here tonight for family reasons and so I'm really speaking on behalf of others in the, 
and the project. I'd also like to acknowledge, I understand there might be some volunteers from the project and also pay my tribute to Maori Stewart who has partnered with us to um, advise, guide and really get involved in this, this project. So we kicked it off with, um, in 2020, we held a community event in the forest to celebrate its 30th birthday and to launch our project. And from this, we started building a team of people and engaging with local community members who wanted to be part of it. Now, my role is mainly backroom, um, which is good because I don't actually live in the area, and this is all about local people looking after their local forest. So I provide um, advice, support, management, uh, tick boxes, and we're, we're doing this also as a... Um, action research process. So we're looking at, we're, we're documenting how the project was developed and the processes we're using, and that will be a case study on regeneration for other communities to perhaps learn from some of our mistakes and, and what worked. So what does our project look like? Um, when we first started talking about it, there were suggestions that we could just have a big Clean, clean up and planting day. You could advertise all over the cities for volunteers, maybe go to, to um, volunteer in Canterbury, get a team in, tidy it up, done and dusted, off home again, everybody feeling good about what they did. But that was not going to build an ongoing relationship um, and we wanted to build that so that we had that kind of two-way process. So... The two main streams of the project so far, Mark has built a team of volunteers from the local community who are becoming the kaitiaki or, or garden guardians. And they will take care and they are developing their processes already on looking after the thing, keeping an eye on what's happening in there, organising watering and drought, um, things like that. And the other part that we've done so far is engaging the local school, St Martin's School, and with working with the teachers. There is a group of students come down every couple of weeks and they learn about various aspects of the forest and the river. And we talk not just about the, the biological things but about spiritual things. Um, each, each session with the children starts with karakia, starts and finishes with karakia, we talk about how they feel about being in the forest and um, what they get from it, what they can do for the forest. It has been about engaging with the people in this place, creating the, con the conditions for greater connection with this land. So as I say, the focus is not just on restoring the forest, but, a, but also looking at the connections. How does the forest sustain us? physically, emotionally, spiritually. When we first asked the children about... Um, we, we gave them a questionnaire on their first thing and they want, we wanted them to know that it was not a, it's not a school test, you know, this is, not, this is not about passing a test or anything, but some of the things we asked was, well, you know, how did you feel when you're in nature? And their responses was calm, relaxed, connected. How did you feel when the karakia was happening? relaxed and peaceful. We look at how the forest sustains humans 
and um, we had hoped to be able to also run a series of workshops or um, wānaka in the in the um, forest, looking at things like rongoa, looking at things like flax weaving, um, looking about how it could nurture your artistic um, endeavours. Unfortunately, COVID came along, and that's kind of put that on the back burner for a wee while, but we're getting there. Um, so what have we learned from it? We've faced a lot of challenges, thinking about the best way forward in a way that stays true to our values. But this is what the research aspect is all about. The challenges I've particularly found for me was about um, relationship building, particularly with Takata Whenua, because um, building relationships takes time, and projects often have time constraints, which are imposed by Te Ao Pākehā. Our dominant structures don't deal well with indefinite timelines and non-specific outcomes, which when you're being responsive to nature and people's where people are at is what we need. I'm pretty task-oriented, and that had been a big learning for me. Like, like many people, I get a feeling of accomplishment by starting and finishing a worthwhile task. But this project is about relationships and learnings as much as it is the tasks of weeding, planting, watering, or in my case, writing up, having project meetings, ticking the admin boxes and so on. So even though I'm not involved in the day-to-day -day mahi of being in the forest planting and watering, I'm still learning about the need to go with the flow and allowing things to evolve naturally. I continue to look forward with the learning that I'll continue to do, and I hope the other participants, the volunteers, are having that same experience. And, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that and the relationships with this very special tiny forest. Kia ora. Kia ora, Tato. Uh, before I start, I'd like to say I'm not going to sing to you. Some of you might see that this is uh, a music sheet. Um, recycled paper. My name's Chris Boter. I became involved with volunteer work on Otamahua, Quail Island in 2017, a year after my wife. She had picked up a leaflet about the work of the Otamahua, Quail Island Ecological Restoration Trust on the island a year or two earlier. We both knew and loved the island for its quiet beauty, having been there a number of times with the children and by ourselves, and felt the trust work was a wonderful concept. The trust work involves the ecological restoration of the island to a pre-human state through replanting much of the island with native species, ongoing care, reintroduction of native animals, eradication of weed species, and monitoring and eradicating pests and predators. The latter has been achieved to some extent. There are now no rabbits, stoats, ferrets, feral cats, or hedgehogs, although there are still mice. Our work days are on the first and third Sunday of every month. It is, of course, seasonal work, and traditionally, one day in August, we get security clearance to enter Littleton Port with 2,000 plants. 
These are transferred to an ex-tugboat, and we and the rest of the gang are transported across to the island, where we offload them onto a trailer, and they are then driven to a nursery. But deer are quite a problem, and have caused uh, a pause in planting. They come across from Morapuku Point, a headland south of King Billy Island at low tide. They love to feed on the new plants and strip bark off the well-grown trees. The trust is awaiting a response from Doc regarding a cull on the island. We are usually part of a volunteer group of six or more under the leadership of the trust chairman, Ian McClellan. There are some regular volunteers like ourselves, but others are occasional and sometimes come as a large group, such as a school group or tramping club. We meet at the wharf in Littleton at 9 or 10 o'clock, depending upon the sailings, and are ferried across to the island by Black Cat Cruises. It takes about 10 minutes. We work until midday, break for half an hour, and then carry on until 2 p.m. or thereabouts. The ferry leaves at 3.30. Volunteer groups contribute more than 5,600 hours annually. The group is prepared in a, sorry, the ground is prepared in advance for us to enable planting. And each of us plants 20 to 30 trees or shrubs in a day. These are a mixture of manuka, kanuka, pitosporum, caprosma, lancewood, kofi, flax, five fingers, and even silver tussock grass. Each plant is surrounded by a cardboard or plastic guard to shield it from the wind and the deer as much as possible. Aftercare of plants brings a frequent call for, vis for visit volunteers. We need to release the plants of encroaching weeds such as scotch thistles or tall grass. This is done using long-handled shears, but prickles are often a surprise, even through gloves. The grass can reach chest height, and sometimes it's difficult to find the plants, despite the pattern of planting. When the plants have grown sufficiently, the plastic combi guards need to be removed and possibly reused. Some guards will have blown away and will need to be found and replaced. Cardboard guards are more desirable because they can be left to rot. Perhaps the job most in demand is weeding th through much of the island. We pull out the weeds or, if our strength fails us, we clip and use weed-specific poison. Scotch thistle can usually be dealt with using a grubber. Californian thistles are left untouched as no ground attack can prevent their, speed, their spread through an underground root system. Non-native broom and pine take much of our time, but we also search for and destroy macrocarpa, oak, ash, pig's ear, bone seed, hawthorn, spur valerian, and briar rose seedlings. No matter how thorough we are, pine and non-native broom reappear every year. What we are pleased to see reappearing are birds, such as native pigeons, kereru, grey warbler, riro kingfisher, kotari, fantail, piwakawaka, bellbird, koromako, 
and silver eyes, taho. Native bird numbers have increased as trees mature and provide more nesting sites and a more varied food source. Over the past 25 years, the Trust has planted over 103,000 trees. Native ground beetles, leaf vein slugs, and the Akaroa tree wetter have been introduced to the island. We are proud to have been and continue to be a part of the shining example of ecological restoration. Namihi. Thank you. Thank you very much, all three of you. Um, we're now into the final phases of the event tonight. Uh, as is our tradition now, we are going to have a little creative um, contribution and I'd like to invite Eric Kennedy to come up and introduce that for us. Kia ora koutou katoa, ko Eric Kennedy aho. Um, I'm the co-editor of a book called No Other Place to Stand, which is an anthology of climate change poetry from Aotearoa and the Pacific. Um, 91 poets in this, so I know a lot of people who write about climate change. Therefore, I have the very agreeable task of curating a series of poets who are going to read one per event in 2022 at Christchurch Conversations. Um, and it's really exciting to be able to bring the emotional expertise of artists to this alongside the other kinds of expertise that are already being brought into these dialogues about these vital issues. Um, our poet tonight is Gail Ingram. Uh, her first book was called Contents Under Pressure, Pukeko Publications 2019. And her next book is called Anthology. Um, and the Greek scholars among you will know that the literal meaning of anthology is a book of flowers. So this is a wide-ranging exploration of the flora of Aotearoa, including some of Otatahi's urban wildness. Um, she cannot be here in person tonight because of COVID in her household, um, but she made a fantastic video of one of her poems, which you will now see. The Lizard Man. One. In times of crisis, there are those who dart about frantic, those who bury their head in the proverbial, and those in your backyard who do the heavy lifting, moving heaven and... Two. The Lizard Man observes the poor seater, Carrick's book in an eye, and Tasia's new growth, orange fingers stretched in glee towards the giving sky. And he nods. The lizard man slashes boxthorn and weeds gorse. The lizard man picks out polystyrene pieces, bottle tops and foil packets left over from the specious development next to the Heathcote River. He places them in his threatened single-use plastic bag each time he bow-legged walks the length of the track he built with his friend. The lizard man rubs his weather knee. 
The lizard man studies Mullenbeckia astoni, Caprosma rotundifolia, and other complex buried shrubs on his ageing laptop. The lizard man plans a planting list for the grass skinks of Canterbury. He carries heavy stones to build homes. Three. The poet owns she holds the lizard man in her hand. For an instant, when she lifts the rock, a wriggle, a flash of nourishment for times to come. Um, kia ora koutou, and thank you, Gail. Thank you, Eric, for um, organising all of that for us. Um, so a quick thank you for hanging on, because we've run so far over, because you had so many questions, and everyone's so engaged with this topic. Thank you all for joining us this evening. A huge thank you to all our speakers. Please thank them again. Um, you have so greatly stimulated our thinking, our ambition, and I hope our action. Thank you to our supporters and partners, Christchurch City Council, the Urban Wellbeing Research Thread. And I invite you to leave here and now talk with others. Talk with others about wilding your minds, about wilding your lives and wilding our city. I think we have the vision, the passion, and now we need, as our panellists said, more resources, education, to spread the word and influence the decision makers. Thank you for joining us online and in the room. If you're here in Tūranga and you want to chat, please head to the activity room. Some of our speakers might hang around there if you want to ask them some of your questions. Um, and apologies for not getting to all of those questions. There were so many. Uh, don't forget to diary our next Christchurch conversation, which is on the 20th of September and explores the related issue of green infrastructure, asking whether or not trees are our best urban climate technology you could also go see a film this week as well. It's at Lumiere um, about wetlands. Okay, thanks everyone. You've been listening to part two of Embracing the Urban Wild, the first event in the Christchurch Conversations 2022 Climate Action Series. Many thanks to Te Putahi Centre for Architecture and City Making for sharing this recording. Podcasts of the series will be available on the Plains FM website. Just search Christchurch Conversations. 